Hi, and welcome to Harvest Bible Chapel, Kuala Lumpur Online. We hope that the following message will be a blessing to you as you seek to walk with the Lord in spirit and in truth. For more information about our church, please visit www.harvestkl.org or click the link in the description below. Good morning to everyone. Can you all hear well in the back? Can you hear well? Awesome. It is a great privilege to be with uh, all of you here this morning to study the word together. I appreciate Michael uh, asking me to uh, fill in while he had a commitment somewhere else this weekend. Um, I apologize in advance for having a different flavor of English. I am from the deep southern United States uh, and sometimes can be a little difficult to understand, but Kyle made me feel better already this morning because the first thing he said was, morning, y'all. So uh, I felt right at home, thought he might have been trained in a church in Alabama. So uh, really good. Yeah, <laughs> it's great. So um, let me pray real quick before we get started and we'll dig into the word. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this day you've given us, Lord. We thank you for blessings in it. God, we thank you for the great privilege it is to come together, Lord, to be in person. Uh, Lord, after for, you know, the better part of two years because of the pandemic, Lord, just have that taken away. Uh, Lord, we just thank you so much that we are able to come together, Lord, together to just fellowship, to worship you and to praise you together, Lord. We ask you to just put your blessings on this time, Lord, and let your word speak to us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we're going to be in Haggai chapter one today. This is a really nice picture. I just found it online. I didn't make it, um, but uh, we're going to be talking about uh, putting first things first, putting things in order in your life the way they are. If you want to go ahead and turn um, to Haggai chapter one, um, we will be there for the most part. But before we get into uh, Haggai chapter one, I'm going to kind of set the historical background um, around what the situation is in Haggai. So what we have is the Jews have been returned from exile. So they're back in Jerusalem, um, but the temple is destroyed. Uh, Jerusalem has been completely destroyed, but the, the exiles have been returned from the Persian empire. So how did we get here? So we're going to do a real quick, just rapid fire historical background on how we got here first. In 2 Kings chapter 24, verses 3 through 4, it says, Surely this came upon Judah at the command of the Lord to remove them out of his sight for the sins of Manasseh, according to all that he had done and also for the innocent blood that he had shed. For he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, and the Lord would not pardon. So uh, Judah had a really bad king named Manasseh. He took part in child sacrifice, did all kinds of evil things, worshiped idols. And even though some good kings came after him in Judah, God promised that because of the things that Manasseh did, um, he would punish Judah. So then in 2 Kings chapter 25, verse 21, we see, And the king of Babylon struck them down and put them to death at Riblah in the land of Hamath. So Judah was taken into exile out of its land. So in 598 BC, Babylon conquers Judah, destroys Jerusalem, takes the people away way and takes all of the treasures out of the temple and they're in exile. So that's how they got into exile in the first place. And now we want to see how they returned. So the book of Ezra is the best kind of historical, like in a nutshell, how we got the uh, exiled Jews back into Jerusalem. So in chapter one, it tells us that God stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, the king of Persia, and to make an edict. 
So the edict that he makes is Cyrus says in verse uh, chapter one, verse three of Ezra, whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah and rebuild the house of the Lord. So God stirs up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, and he sends the Jews back to Jerusalem for the purpose, it says, to rebuild the house of the Lord. So then in chapter three, they are back. They build the altar first so they can make sacrifices, and then they put the foundation of the temple up. But they're really, a lot of, there's some older people who knew Solomon's temple and all of its glory, and they lament. They're sad over the state of what will be the new temple. So in Ezra chapter 2, verse 64, it tells us that about 42,000 people are returned and will build this temple. But in 1 Kings chapter 5, it tells us that Solomon's temple was built by about 180,000 slaves. So it's very different, and the temple that will follow after Solomon's temple is going to be very different. And it says in chapter uh, 3, verse 12 of Ezra, that many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of the house being laid. The temple is not going to be quite of the same grandeur that Solomon's temple was. So in chapter 4, we see that there are enemies and there are opposition to the construction. So the Jews are going to rebuild the temple, but they have some problems. And in chapter 4, verse 24, it says, Then the work of the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped. So the whole purpose they're sent back to Jerusalem for is to rebuild the temple, but the construction is stopped because of opposition. And this is kind of where we are in Haggai. This is like the point in history where Haggai starts. So in Ezra chapter 5, it says in verses 1 and 2, Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtel, and Jeshua, the son of Jehozadak, arose and began to build the house of God that is in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. So this is where we are in Haggai, where they have ceased construction because of opposition, but then construction needs to start anew. And then in chapter 6, we see of Ezra, we see where King Darius, who is now the king of Persia, uh, issues a decree that the temple is to be rebuilt. And not only that, but they'll pay for it. Uh, in verse 3 of chapter 6 of Ezra, it says, let the house be rebuilt. In verse 4, it says, let the cost be paid from the royal treasury. And then it says in verse 11 that if anybody alters the decree or opposes them, it says, let a beam be pulled out of his house and he shall be impaled on it and his house shall be made a dunghill. These parts of history are always amazing to me because God uses these pagan kings who do not worship him to fulfill his purpose. We see in the very beginning, God stirs up the spirit of Cyrus to send them back to rebuild the temple. And then, you know, he makes Darius make this rule so that they can start construction again. So this is where we are when we get to Haggai, is that um, the Jews have been returned from exile, but they faced opposition and they stopped doing what they were supposed to do, which was rebuild the temple. And the time between this, historians think that Cyrus returned the Jews to Ju Jerusalem in 538 BC, and then this is about 520 BC. So what we have is about an 18-year period where they stopped working on the temple, and it just laid in ruins. Um, they were doing other things, worried about their own lives. And then another little point to make is that Zechariah, the next book in the Bible after Haggai, um, the prophet Zechariah is prophesying during the same situation um, and to the same people. So now we're at Haggai, um, and we can start in chapter one. We're going to read the first four verses to start, um, and we will talk about what the problem is with the people here. So I'm going to read the first four verses of chapter one. 
In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? So what we see here is that the people have become worried about their own lives and not about God's work. So they were sent back to Jerusalem by Cyrus at the uh, urging of God for the whole purpose of rebuilding the temple. And now 18 years have passed, and they're not doing that. They're not doing the one thing that they were supposed to do, the thing that was supposed to be the first priority in their lives. God, normally when he asks us a question, it is rhetorical. So in this one, it says, is it time for your, yourselves to dwell in paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? It's an answer that you already know. Of course, they shouldn't be worried about building their own homes and building their own lives while the temple of God lies in ruins. And one thing that's so important to understand about this mindset is ancient Jews, um, we know that God's presence is always available to us everywhere. He fills every spot in every universe. He is always there. He is present everywhere. But to the Jews, they saw his tangible presence, the smoke and the fire and the tabernacle and in the temple. They thought that was the tangible presence of God. And if it was not there, then God wasn't there. So it's the reason why they didn't believe any of the prophets in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the prophets are like, hey, if you don't start obeying God's commands, he's going to destroy Jerusalem and just send you all away. And all the Jews were like, there's no way he's going to do that. God lives in the temple. He's clearly not going to destroy it. God's presence left the temple. Temple is destroyed, and all the people were proven wrong. But in their minds, without a temple, they had no presence of God. So even though God's presence is everywhere and always available, that's not the way they thought of it. So by ignoring the temple and rebuilding the temple for this period of time, they were basically saying that God's presence in their lives was not important enough to them to get this done. So that also kind of increases the magnitude of their decision to not do this. So it brings a really important question for our lives as well. What comes first for us? Is it our lives or is it God's work that comes first? What do we put first in our lives Monday through Saturday, before we go to church on Sunday, what comes first for us? Do we put our children above our relationship with Christ? Do we put our jobs above our relationship with Christ? Do we put our financial security or our physical security above our relationship with Christ? Jesus speaks to this. We um, Bethany read it for us today in the scripture reading. I'm going to read it again in Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 33. Jesus says, Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So Jesus is telling his disciples that 
you're seeking the kingdom of God and putting your relationship with Christ is absolutely paramount and number one in your life. It has to be the number one thing. And Jesus goes to the very fundamentals. He goes to, it's more important than food. It's more important than water. It's more important than clothes. He says, why do you say, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? And he makes a really good point. He says, by worrying about those things, can you add a single span, a single hour to the span of life? There's no point in worrying about it and just trusting God instead. So we seek first the kingdom of God. And for us in our own lives, that means putting him above everything else. Always making sure that we take care of our relationship with our Savior and our Creator before we worry about the other things. It's even more important than our children. It's more important than our careers. It's more important than our relationship with our spouse. It's more important than everything. And we can't have things ranked above Christ. We can't, you know, make sure that our children do their math homework, but doesn't read their Bible. We have to make sure that we put our relationship with Christ as number one. I'm a, a runner, and I think about how many times I've probably missed really concentrated prayer time, but made sure that I got in my daily run. And those are the things that we can't have in our lives before everything else. It has to come first for him. So in the 1940s, uh, in America, there was a psychologist named Abraham Maslow, and he made this really good theory on how people address um, the needs of their life, and it's called Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. It's very true, and it's very good for how uh, the human race kind of uh, developed over time. So what Abraham Maslow said was that people, first before everything else, they worry about their physiological needs, food, water, rest. So people will do anything they have to do to get those things. Starving people will ignore everything else, including safety and the law and whatever they need to make sure they get food. In the Old Testament, we see that when uh, Jerusalem was under siege, there were women that actually cooked and ate their own babies. It's a terrible thing to think about, but that's what starvation will do to people. So the human need of physiological food and water to stay alive is your most basic need and what people worry about first. When they get those things um, in their lives, the next thing they worry about is safety, security. So that's when people build homes, they build uh, community cities, build walls around cities. You worry about being safe. So once you have the things you need, like food and water, the next thing you think about is being safe. So once you're safe and full and not thirsty and those things, then you worry about some more uh, intimate things, love and belonging. You want family relationships, you want friends, you want um, to be part of community. Uh, you want to feel like you're a part of society in general. And then after that, you start thinking about feeling good about your self-esteem, doing a good job at your, at your work, being a good husband, being a good father, uh, being a good athlete, being a good student, whatever it may be, you're worried about that. And then the very last thing, when you have everything else you need in life, life is comfortable, you have all the needs is self-actualization, which is just being the best version of yourself. So imagine you're a student in school, you're very good, you make really good grades, and if you really set your mind to it, you could be a heart surgeon. So if you went to medical school, studied really hard, achieved that, and became a heart surgeon, you have actualized like the best version of yourself. So that's Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And this is a very true theory in the way that people and humans interact with their lives. But the thing about it is, for us Christians, there should be a level below physiological. The triangle needs a different base. Like our relationship with Christ, our Savior and our Creator is below physiological. We take care of our relationship with Jesus before we even worry about having food and water, shelter, any of that stuff. So as true as Maslow's hierarchy of needs is, 
there is a bottom tier for the Christian before everything else. It should just be Jesus below there. There was a preacher in the 1700s in America that's very famous named Jonathan Edwards. And talking about this, seeking first the kingdom, Jonathan Edwards said, let seeking this be so much your bent and what you are so resolved in that you will make everything give place to it. Whatever it may be that you used to look upon as a convenience or comfort or ease or thing desirable on any account, if it stands in the way of this great concern, let it be dismissed without hesitation. It's really hard to think about that in terms of what we normally tend to put above Christ in our lives are good things. They are gifts from God. So the number one thing that people tend to put above their relationship with Christ is their children. And those are good gifts from God. God gives them to you, and they, it is to be fruitful. Uh, it is a good gift, but you can't idolize it above your relationship with Christ. And think about it when Jonathan Edwards says, if it gets in the way of this great concern, let it be dismissed without hesitation. It's the same way when we are really focused on our careers and being good at our job, making good money and doing those kinds of things. If it gets in the way of your relationship with Christ, he says, let it be dismissed without hesitation. It's a very hard command, but it's so true for us because our relationship with Jesus has to be number one. We have to put it above everything else, and we maintain that relationship with him before our relationships with anyone else or anything else in our lives. So the next two verses of Haggai, is ch uh, chapter 1, uh, 5, and 6, one thing I want us to look at is look at the phrase, consider your ways. Some, think, some translations say, think carefully about your ways, but think about that while we're reading these two verses. So 5 and 6 say, now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. So the people are struggling to get by, and it is because God is actually limiting their success. And this phrase, consider your ways or think carefully about your ways, is really important. What God is saying is, before I tell you these things, think about the way you're living your life. So he tells them they've sown a lot but haven't harvested very much. It says they have clothes but they can't stay warm. They make money but they just lose it all. And he says, why are those things happening? Think about the way you live your life. Consider your ways. And this is so important for us in our lives. Uh, in the West, we always, you know, real spiritual language is examine yourself. That's what people say all the time. Just like look into your heart, dig deep into your heart, and think about the way you're living your life and what you're putting as priority in your life. And then think about maybe why things are not going the way that you want them to go. So these people would know exactly what he was talking about when it says, consider your ways, think about your life. So verses seven through nine, I'm going to read. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways again. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? I, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. So what we see here is God is actually responsible for limiting their success in their farming and all of those other things in their life. And there's a few reasons why. The first one is that his house lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. So Jesus or God is saying, hey, 
I am limiting your success in these things because look, my house is still in ruins. My work still remains undone. You're sitting here, you're doing the things that, you know, you're focused on. You are planting crops and harvesting them. You are making clothes. You are building homes for yourself. And the temple of God still lies in ruins. There's no temple service going on. People are not worshiping God because there is no temple. And you're worried about your own work. So God limits their success because his work still remains undone. And then another reason is just so he can be glorified. In verse 8, it says, Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified. God's chief concern all the time is his glory. God wants to be glorified above all other things. And when we fail to do that, he will intervene. These two things, that God may be glorified and that his work be done, is something else that we need to consider in our lives. When you look at your life and you think about your priorities and what you're putting above Christ. And then you think, my life isn't going great. Things are not always working out for me. Why? There's a couple of, think about those two things. Are you glorifying God with your life? The things you're doing in your life, are you glorifying him with those things? If the answer is no, God may be limiting your success because you're not glorifying him. And then the other one, that his work would be done. If you're doing other things and leaving his work undone, Maybe he's limiting your success because of that. He's waiting on you to do his work. So you think maybe God's calling you to share your faith with someone. Maybe God's calling you to be more involved in the church and be of service. Maybe God's calling you to serve the poor. Maybe God's calling you to get involved with an organization that helps people, whatever it may be. God may be calling you to do something for him. And if you're leaving that undone to do something else, that other thing you're doing may have limited success because God's work is remaining undone. So think about those things. Are you glorifying God in your life? And are you doing the work that he's putting before you? If you're not, the other things in your life, God may limit until you address those issues. So let's read verses 10 and 11. It says, Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. So we have to be really clear about this again, because a lot of times people like to avoid these things in um, Scripture. But God is responsible for their struggles. He tells them that he called for a drought on the land. So all these troubles that they're having, God calls them himself. He is saying, until you do the things you're supposed to do, you will not prosper in your life. And this is the reason these things have been going on. Now, we want to take just a minute and, and talk about uh, what's kind of an, an issue in our world today in churches and in theology. And that is that this is not a prosperity gospel. This is not a message of, oh, yeah, by the way, if you live right and you live righteous and you do the things God wants you to do, you are going to experience prosperity and wealth from a worldly perspective. That's not what this all means. It doesn't mean that you will have um, a really big, nice condo with lots of amenities and a fancy car, and your kids are going to be the best students and the best athletes, and everything's going to be great for you if you live right. Those are the world's views of prosperity, and that's not what God's talking about. What God wants us to have is a like really healthy, just beautiful relationship with Him, a rewarding relationship with Him. And we can reap that benefit by doing things the right way. It is not some kind of 
um, just you do this and he gives you a reward for it. In the 37th Psalm, uh, verse 16 says, better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked. And then in verses 23 through 24 of that same Psalm, it says, the steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong for the Lord upholds his hand. These two verses tell us that it is better to have a little and live right than to have a lot and be wicked. And it also tells us in 23 and 24 of this Psalm, it says, though he fall, and then there's other translations that say, when he falls. So what it tells us is that the righteous man will fall. In the New Testament, Jesus and the apostles promise us over and over again that there will be suffering and persecution and struggles for Christians. It is no way, we are never told in Scripture that God is going to take the Christian out of the struggles of the world. The world is broken, it is sinful, and we face the same consequences of that in the world as everybody else around us. So don't forget when you study these verses and everything that these are not promises that if you obey God, seek first his kingdom, that you will live a life of prosperity based on the world's view. So the point is that there are real consequences to sin and to not making a priority of God's work. If God has work before you in your life that he wants you to do and your relationship with him, if you don't put a priority on it, there are real consequences to that. And that is the point of all of this. James 4, 17 says, so, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is a sin. So we always focus a lot on sins of commission, things you do, whether it's lying or stealing. But there are sins of omission as well, things you fail to do. And that's what this verse in James means. If you know the right thing to do and don't do it, for you it is a sin. So putting Christ above everything else in your life, having him seeking first the kingdom of God and doing those things first, maintaining your relationship with him above everything else, because you know that's the right thing to do. If you don't do it, it is a sin. So for these people uh, in, in Judah at the time in Jerusalem, um, this is kind of a wake-up call, and they would have known why these things were happening. In Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 13 and 14, uh, this is the original uh, covenant given to Moses, and God says, if you will indeed obey my commandments that I command you today to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart, with all your soul, he will give you the rain for your land in its season, the early rain, the later rain, that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil. So what God tells them in this original covenant is, listen, I will prosper your efforts and your, um, your harvest if you will obey me, my commandments, and love me. But then you see in verse 11 of Haggai chapter 1, God says, I called for a drought. They haven't done the things they were supposed to do. And as a result, these things have happened. And they would have known this very well. Hosea Chapter 10, verse 12 says, Sow for yourselves righteousness, reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground, for it is the time to seek the Lord, that he may come in and rain righteousness upon you. I really love this verse because it really gets into the spiritual nature of what this really all means. It says, Sow for yourselves righteousness and reap steadfast love. What we can expect from God when we seek him first and put his relationship above everything else, the reward we can respect is a really flourishing, beautiful relationship with him. Our number one goal in life should be to have that close relationship with our creator and our savior. He died on the cross for our sins. 
so that we can live for eternity with him in glory. The least we can do is give him the best of our lives. If you do the right things, you reap steadfast love. You reap that relationship with God that will be unmatched to anything else in your life. So the last section of this chapter, um, 12 through 15, is kind of funny. This is really, really um, kind of counter to what happens in most of the, the books of the prophets. If you look at like Jeremiah, God constantly tells him to go deliver a message. And then God says, oh, by the way, nobody's going to listen to you and they're not going to do what they said they were going to do. And I've always thought that was an amazing um, and really, really tough assignment. Hey, yeah, go tell everybody that they're not living right and they need to change their ways, but they're not going to listen. They're not going to do what you ask them to do. And all of this judgment that you're pronouncing is going to happen. But in Haggai, what we see is people actually respond with obedience. Uh, this doesn't happen very often. In Jonah, the Ninevites do it. And in Haggai here, it actually, they actually do it. So let's read verses 12 through 15. It says, Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month and the sixth month and the second year of Darius the king. So what we see is the people respond to God's message with obedience. Like I said, really rare for Old Testament books of the prophets. Um, most of the time they ignored these guys but they actually respond with obedience. And this is the only proper response to God's word is obedience and immediate obedience. It's taken them 18 years of ignoring the work that God put before them, but now they have been approached uh, with their mistakes and they are addressing it. In Mark chapter one, verse 17 through 18, Jesus is calling his disciples and he says, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Is this how we respond to receiving God's word with immediate, with immediate obedience? Do we say, do we drop our nets and follow him right then? Or do we say, oh, but first let me do this. Or, but first let me take care of this. In Luke chapter 9, we see the exact opposite um, of the drop their nets immediately. It says to another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me go first and bury my father. A lot of people have always thought this was really harsh on Jesus's part. Like, you know, hey, go let the guy have his dad's funeral. You know, it's not that big a deal. But in Jewish culture, the guy's father was more than likely perfectly healthy and alive and well. Uh, it was common for the men to live at least around their family and be part of the family business until their father passed away so they could get their inheritance. So when they said, let me go first and bury my father, what they meant was, I will follow you one day when my father dies and I've received my inheritance. And then in verse 61, another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go say farewell to those at my home. Is that the way we respond? Do we drop our nets immediately and follow him? Or do we say, yes, Lord, I will follow you, but first let me do something else. But first, let me get my kids graduated from high school. Once I retire, I'll have so much more time. But first, let me buy the stuff we need, the food, the water, the clothes that we need. Let me take care of those things first, and then I will give to you. Let me give my time to my job, my career, whatever it may be. And when I have left, whatever's left over at the end of the day, let me give it to you. 
That's not the way Jesus calls us to live. There is no but first. The Matthew verse we read or the Matthew scripture read in the beginning says, seek first the kingdom of God. You seek first the kingdom of God and then go from there. It's a tough command in the world that we live in because we have daily worries and daily needs. But scripture tells us to trust God with those results. We are to give everything over to him and trust him. In this last passage of Haggai, it says the messenger, Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. And the Lord's message was, I am with you, declares the Lord. His whole point was, this is a big undertaking, and it's going to be difficult, but know that I am with you. So the point for us is to trust God with the results. We want to give him our life. We want to let him be number one in our life, seek him above even the most basic of needs, and then trust him to get us the things we need. The Matthew passage also tells us that God knows those things, that he knows you need those things. God knows your needs and will provide for you. You have to trust God with the results. Earlier, we mentioned that Zechariah, the next book in the Bible, is prophesying during the same situation. And they're overwhelmed. Zerubbabel is overwhelmed by the magnitude of the project, the opposition, and how difficult it's going to be. And he's like, I don't understand how we can get this done. And in Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6, God says, Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. What God's telling him is that it is a big work, but what you need to understand is it will not be by your strength, it will not be by your power, but it will be by my spirit. The creator of the universe, the God who has made everything else, his power is how this will be done. So in your life, when, it think, when you think it's difficult to put your relationship with Christ and your service to him above everything else, it's so important that we remember these two things, these two promises we have. God tells us that it won't be by our power, it will be by his and then in Haggai, it says, I will be with you, declares the Lord. So remember that in your life, putting Christ above everything else, that God is with you and he will take care of you. And if you put him above everything else, you can trust him with the results. Let me pray real quick. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much, Lord, for this day. God, we just thank you that we can trust you with our lives, Lord. God, we thank you that uh, you hold the world in your hands, that everything is in your control, Lord. God, we just thank you so much that your presence is with us all the time, Lord, and that we can just trust you to take care of us while we serve you. God, again, I just thank you for this privilege that we have to come together to worship you, to praise you, Lord, to lift your name on high, Lord, and to study your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.